From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Hello and welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis and joining me on the panel this week are VOA Congressional Correspondent Catherine Gibson and Moment Magazine contributor Dan Ravive. Welcome Catherine and Dan. Good to be here. It's my pleasure. Well, here are the issues. Ukraine and Russia accuse each other of blowing up a dam, causing widespread flooding, which has led to a lack of normal access to drinking water in southern Ukraine. South Korea scrambled its fighter jets after Chinese and Russian military aircrafts entered its air defense zone in the south and east of the Korean peninsula. The incursion followed encounters between U.S. and Chinese forces in the Taiwan Strait and South China Sea that the Biden administration cites as an example of growing aggressiveness by Beijing's military. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken arrived in Saudi Arabia for a much-anticipated visit amid frayed ties due to deepening disagreements on everything from Iran policy to regional security issues, oil prices, and human rights. Here in the U.S., House conservatives revolted against their own leaders by bringing floor action to a screeching halt, a stunning display of internal strife fueled by residual anger over the debt ceiling deal that House Speaker Kevin McCarthy struck with President Biden and passed last week. The political world is bracing for the possibility of a federal indictment of former President Trump, the leading candidate for the 2024 Republican presidential election. A flurry of recent activity and posturing related to a special counsel probe into Trump's handling of classified documents is fueling talk that an indictment could be imminent. Well, those are the issues, and let's get started. Ukraine says Russia had committed a deliberate war crime in blowing up the Soviet-era Novokokhovka Dam, which powered a hydroelectric station. The Kremlin blamed Ukraine, saying it was trying to distract from the launch of a major counteroffensive Moscow says is faltering, while Washington said it was uncertain who was responsible. And looking at all of these scenarios, how is this development affecting Ukraine? counteroffensive, Catherine. We certainly know that this is going to have a serious impact, not only on the thousands that are fleeing that area, but also on the agricultural issues that are going to be impacted, where they're going to see, you know, crops impacted by this flooding. And of course, there's also concern about whether there'll be enough water to fuel the cooling for Europe's largest nuclear power plant, which is nearby. So not only do we have a humanitarian disaster, but we also have agricultural and nuclear consequences from this as well. So we're just beginning to see how widespread this is. When it comes to affecting Ukraine's plan for an offensive, which, of course, observers have been expecting for weeks and months, with President Vladimir Zelensky's government saying it's really soon that the Ukrainian forces will push against the Russians in the territory that Russia is holding to the east. You just look at the river, the Dnipro River, because the dam has been destroyed now. 
is wider than it was. Literally, it'll be harder for Ukrainian forces to cross the river and to go right up against where the Russians have been sitting. And that, to me, is one of the reasons that Russia would have destroyed the dam, not just to distract, not just to cause danger, not just to ruin parts of Ukrainian agriculture, but literally to make this military offensive more difficult. So let's say it'll be more difficult, but certainly in history, even in warfare going back for centuries, if one army had to cross a river or a lake, they're able to do it. They build pontoon bridges, they lay down artillery fire up ahead. So it still has been expected that Ukraine would start the offensive. And even on Thursday, it was more than a rumor that there seemed to be Ukrainian attacks across a wide front. And maybe they said the offensive has begun. Maybe. So what has been the reaction from the international community? In general, I'm hearing condemnations of Russia. Certainly the United States and its allies in NATO believe that Russia did it. It would be helpful, I would say, if the NATO side, the U.S. and its allies, would publish some sort of evidence. Taking a step back, I feel that since this war began in February of last year with Russia invading Ukraine and putting out all kinds of stories about needing to denazify Ukraine. And Ukraine has been the danger in blaming NATO for the war. I feel that the West is making a lot of accusations against Russia, but it might be more helpful if we saw a dossier of information, obviously from intelligence sources, maybe to be more persuasive to the whole world that this situation is Russia's fault including now the destruction of that dam. And that's a great point, Dan, because we're in a really interesting situation domestically here in the United States, where, of course, U.S. aid to Ukraine, the next tranche of funding, is up for debate. We're going to touch on some of the internal divisions within the Republican Party on Capitol Hill a bit later. But all of that is playing into this larger discussion about just how much more funding the U.S. Congress is going to be appropriating to Ukraine and whether or not we've been giving them too much. There are conservatives here in the United States who are making that argument and having that evidence that you spoke about would really be helpful in making that argument that Russia indeed was responsible for this. Yes, that's a good point. And just to add, Deputy U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Robert Wood told reporters it would not make sense for Ukraine to destroy the dam. So we'll just have to see what further developments are going to occur in the coming days. Now, South Korea's defense ministry has lodged a stern protest with Beijing and Moscow after Chinese and Russian military planes entered the country's air defense identification zone unannounced during what China's defense ministry said was a joint patrol exercise. Unlike a country's airspace, the air above its territory and territorial waters, there are no international rules governing air defense zones. So what was going on in South Korea's air defense zone, and was there cause for alarm? Well, first, as you pointed out, Kim, an air defense zone is not the same as your territory or even your sovereign airspace, but the kind of thing that a country declares, right? This is an air defense zone that we're going to keep patrolling, and so foreign air forces should not enter. You know, sometimes, of course, countries even declare that in the waters around their own country, like foreign navies had better not enter. And in that part of the world, the Taiwan Strait, the South China Sea, that's where often these things are challenged, because let's say China doesn't want to give up the right to sail through certain areas, or 
Now, we learn fly through certain areas, even in this joint exercise that involved China and Russia. There's been so much talk about those two countries cooperating. China, by the way, saying it does not help Russia in its war against Ukraine. But China works with the Russian military in other ways. It's just a reminder of how things are so delicate right now in that region. That's right. And, you know, U.S. Defense Secretary Austin was speaking at a Asian conference earlier this week and said that this is a concerning sign that it's just a sign of the communications breakdown with China and that really the U.S. and its European allies need to continue keeping those lines of communication open so that there are no misunderstandings that lead to unintentional consequences. And this is certainly from the lawmakers that I've been speaking to on Capitol Hill, yet another sign that the U.S. really needs to catch up, that it's been behind the curve on addressing the threat posed by China. And we're just really getting ramped up on Capitol Hill in terms of hearings from multiple angles about how to deal with this threat. But all the lawmakers I've been speaking to are really, they have a sense that the U.S. really has been behind the curve on this and needs to really get a sense of how to approach this problem. Catherine, can I take your temperature for a second as your political temperature as someone who's covering Congress all the time? You know, there's a lot of talk here in the United States media that the U.S. and China could be heading toward likely war if China decides, say, to invade Taiwan. And how would the U.S. respond? Do members of Congress think things could be that severe? Oh, certainly. You know, we have a special committee on this issue, on addressing the strategic competition with China. And recently, within the last few weeks, the members of that committee held a war game to play out what would happen if China really made overtures and took over Taiwan. And, you know, talking to those lawmakers coming out of that meeting, it was pretty grim. They were pretty tight lipped and saying none of the issues are going to be good if indeed this does happen. The U.S. just doesn't have good options if that plays out. So absolutely a lot of concern on Capitol Hill. One trend I've been hearing from corporate America is that American companies that manufacture and sell things, largely electronics, but also textiles, are trying to move their factories out of China or stop manufacturing so much in China, not to be dependent on their operations in that country. And this has been going on for several years, but I feel that it's really stepping up. And instead to manufacture in other Asian countries where wages are relatively low when you look at it as an American. And so Vietnam, when possible, Cambodia, Bangladesh, India, they are getting, frankly, more work and American corporations considering building more factories. That's fascinating to hear, Dan. That's something I haven't heard come up on the Hill quite a bit. I'd be interested to see if that comes up more and more. Well, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken had an open, candid conversation with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman about a wide range of bilateral issues, including Iran, regional security issues, oil prices and human rights. So what was Blinken's overall goal in his visit to Saudi Arabia? Maybe to kiss and make up without being too friendly. It is still a challenge for the Biden administration to consider Saudi Arabia's human rights records with so many flaws that the United States has criticized. President Biden, when he was a candidate for the presidency, was so harsh towards Saudi Arabia and specifically the crown prince known as MBS for the murder of the Saudi journalist who lived in the United States, Adnan Khashoggi, who was murdered in Turkey 
Turkey by Saudi agents. And that is something that obviously made MBS really angry. And so for various reasons, Saudi Arabia has shown that it's not dependent on the U.S., that it's going to do business with China especially, but also with Russia. And so it's a constant sign of defiance in Saudi Arabia. The Saudis even cooperated with China on reestablishing diplomatic relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran, two countries that have been so hostile to each other. And so I think the U.S. Secretary of State Blinken goes to Saudi Arabia, as he did, to say, I think we should talk about absolutely everything because you, the Saudis, are still important strategic allies of ours. But here in the United States, Americans who look at this are saying, oh, what kind of allies? They're cutting oil production, which causes an increase in oil prices when the United States is so concerned about inflation. Not very helpful. You really summarized a lot of the concerns I've been hearing from lawmakers on Capitol Hill that the U.S. has really been forced into this position and that it has to recalibrate this long running alliance with Saudi Arabia as it's really looked to other elements of commerce and economics redefining itself so that it's not quite as dependent on oil. There's a lot of concern among lawmakers that this comes at a very delicate time. As you mentioned, those human rights concerns are really something that we try to press on with the Saudis. But do we have that leverage there when, as you mentioned, the economic situation in the U.S. is still recovering from the COVID-19 pandemic? So a really tough balancing act for lawmakers as they put that message to the Biden administration about how they should be negotiating with Saudi Arabia. And by the way, they probably, well, I'll say certainly, would have discussed Iran's nuclear program. The United States is still committed to Iran never getting an atomic bomb, never getting a nuclear bomb. That's something the Saudis would agree with. But any action, maybe there's covert action. Maybe there's continued diplomacy toward reestablishing an Iran nuclear deal. Israel has said that it is concerned. The U.S. may be starting talks soon with Iran again. And Israel says that a nuclear deal would just be a false hope. And Israel's trying to keep the U.S. definitely on Israel's side, making more threats against Iran. Very good summary on that issue. And I just wanted to get a mention in on another news topic involving Saudi Arabia, the two-year-long fight between the PGA Tour and Saudi Arabia's Live Golf came to a stunning conclusion with the news that the rivals are now joining forces. Financial analysts say the merger will elevate golf globally and give it new resources to expand its fan base. And American lawmakers, commentators, and sports fans are calling the deal, quote, hypocritical, unquote, and accusing the PGA Tour of taking Saudi blood money. Why did the PGA Tour change their mind and decide to do this merger, Dan? It seems to me that the PGA Tour or Professional Golfers Association has been finding that their campaign against Live Golf, which is owned by Saudi Arabia, wasn't working, right? Many of the top players in golf were accepting huge amounts of money to join Live Golf, and the PGA felt that things aren't going its way. So instead, they sat together. They came up with a merger. It feels to many people like a Saudi takeover because all the money of this now merged golf event, all the money will come from Saudi Arabia and all the profits will go there as well. And there are, well, human rights objections to this because one thing that the PGA Tour had been saying to British and American and Japanese golf stars is don't join Live because Saudi Arabia is so terrible and now the PGA has joined Live. 
Very interesting. So we will see just how well this new merger is going to work. Well, it's time now for a quick break. And when we return, some U.S. House conservatives retaliate over Speaker Kevin McCarthy's leadership on last week's vote to raise the debt limit. Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voanews.com issues. While you're there, check out our other programs, Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook and leave a comment or two. Then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now back to our panel via Skype, VOA Congressional Correspondent Catherine Gibson and Moment Magazine contributor Dan Revive. Well, House conservatives staged a mini-revolt this week in retaliation for Speaker Kevin McCarthy's leadership on last week's vote to raise the debt limit. So, Catherine, what are the issues that are frustrating these lawmakers? Well, it does come back to that debt ceiling deal, as you mentioned. This small group of conservatives were very angry that Kevin McCarthy agreed to some of those budget spending caps along with President Biden. They had not wanted to see that agreed to. Some of them were willing to even have the U.S. hit that debt ceiling in order to get their priorities through. The problem for Kevin McCarthy, and some of our listeners may remember this from earlier this year when he had that 15 rounds of votes to become the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, is that his margins are incredibly small. He only has a handful of members that give him that majority. If he loses any of those members on anything, they really can hold up the business of the House. And that's what we saw this week. Really unusual to see the business of the House floor stopped two days in a row and then have the Speaker basically say, you know, look, we're not going to reach an agreement anytime soon on this. Everybody go home for the weekend. We'll come back next Monday. We'll regroup on this and see if we can reach an agreement on this handful of bills that the conservatives are holding up. So there's some rumbling that this could be a challenge to his speakership, that he could really be facing a loss of his position. And there was a very damning interview with his number two, Steve Scalise, who is in charge of marshalling the votes among the Republican caucus. And he did, frankly, not have good things to say about Speaker McCarthy. It sounds like the communication there between the two men is really breaking down when it should be airtight in the face of this challenge. So there's a lot more of this that's going to be playing out in the next week or so. You know, I'm struck, Catherine, by your use of the word airtight, like that should be the connection among leaders of the Republican majority in the House of Representatives. Because, of course, in the background, the air quality here in Washington has been terrible in recent days because of huge forest fires in Canada, in both Ontario and Quebec. And the smoke has come south into the United States and all along the eastern coast of the U.S. New York had it so bad you could hardly see across the street. Washington, D.C as I'm speaking now, has smoke in the air. And I don't know if members of Congress see this as some sort of, you know, sign of trouble. Is the climate trying to tell us something? And of course, everyone who works in Washington wanted anyway to get away for the weekend and just reset everything in the coming week, perhaps then the air will be clearer, you know, in all of its meanings. But let me just ask you this, Catherine, because it's not just Mr. McCarthy and Mr. Scalise. To me, it, it means that the Republicans who do control the House of Representatives have 
have to decide what is the face they're putting forward, right? With next year being an election year, not just for Congress, but also, of course, for president. Will the Republican Party be more conservative, right wing, as it is said, or try to be more toward the middle in order to gain more votes? I think that's part of what's going on in Congress. Would you agree? Yeah, that's absolutely right on multiple fronts. You know, it certainly is an ominous atmosphere here in Washington, D.C. with the air quality and the debate up on Capitol Hill. And this really jeopardizes a lot of the promises that McCarthy made when he was running for speaker, saying that he was going to pass budget bills all together, get the government funded by October 1st, really have that discussion, as we discussed earlier, about funding for Ukraine. And if he can't simply bring a simple bill about gas stoves, which is what triggered this argument this week, then all of those bigger priorities are really in jeopardy. Okay, very good. And I like your analogy there, Dan, with the smoke and what's going on in Washington. Well, in our last topic, the political world is bracing for the possibility of a federal indictment of former President Donald Trump, the leading candidate for the Republican presidential election next year. So it appears that this is an imminent indictment. And what will this mean for Donald Trump? There are certainly those who follow Republican Party politics who say that it won't hurt him politically, because even if President Trump is under indictment, the former president says he would still be running for president. He would condemn the prosecutors, say it's all a witch hunt. It's election interference, he has said, by federal prosecutors. Certainly, I hear from Democrats here in the United States that they hope, as they see it, justice is done. A lot of this is catching up with him, and Democrats hope that it will stop him and his political aspirations, whereas many Republicans say it might just strengthen him as pro-Trump voters agree that he is unfairly being prosecuted and persecuted. That's a great point, Dan, because I think if he were to be indicted, that absolutely would strengthen his case with his core group of supporters. But there's also a growing field of Republican presidential candidates who are hopeful that this will open up a spot for them. You know, Trump's former vice president, Mike Pence, Chris Christie, all of these contenders who are hoping that this opens up a space for them where they can make the case and pull away some of Trump's voters if indeed he is in jail, then they might have a spot open for them. And we've already been hearing from some Republican lawmakers. Top Senator Lindsey Graham hailed Mike Pence's announcement of his candidacy, saying that Pence was really making an important case and gave an important opening for Republicans to really possibly redefine the party, bring it into a new direction. Republican senators, Republican congressmen had four years where they had to answer for every tweet of former President Donald Trump. And I think many of them would like to see a different Republican presidential candidate so they're not continually placed in that difficult position. Well, it's time now to find out what is weighing on the minds of our panelists this week. Catherine, what is weighing on your mind this week? Well, we've already touched a little bit on the ominous atmosphere here in Washington, D.C. because of the very concerning smoke from those wildfires. I happened to be in New York City on Monday and was walking along some of the parks along the river. It was a gorgeous, crystal clear day. 
New York could not have looked better. So seeing all of this very alarming video of how rapidly the smoke moved in, that kind of orange sky apocalyptic atmosphere really drove home the seriousness of these wildfires and the serious health impact it will have on many people here in the United States. And as we know, it's moving into D.C. as we speak. So I'll be watching to see how that plays out over the next day or so. I'm also watching something that I guess consider to be health related. I've been traveling in, in several countries in the past couple of months, and I'm just amazed at how the world wants to get past the COVID-19 pandemic, like it's over. And various governments declared that the official emergency is over. That was declared here in the United States. In most countries where I visited, I'm thinking of Italy, Spain, Portugal, nobody was wearing a mask. Hardly anybody was wearing a mask at airports and airplanes. I was also in Japan this year, where there's certainly a history of even if you have a cold and you don't want to spread it to anybody, then you will wear a mask as you go out. And there, people were still wearing masks even outdoors. Okay, so a cultural difference. Now, vaccines have given us a large measure of protection, and certainly it's not spreading like it was, but the coronavirus isn't quite over, and I'd rather be kind of cautious in crowded places when jumping country to country. Such a great point, Dan. I was in the United Kingdom this past week, too, on trains and planes, and I didn't see a single mask anywhere. It was very striking for me as well. And we will end the show on those notes. My thanks go to our panelists, VOA Congressional Correspondent Catherine Gibson and Moment Magazine contributor Dan Revive. I'm Kim Lewis, and be sure to join us next weekend for more Issues in the News. Mm-hmm.